Hi, everyone. I know it's not Tuesday, our usual day for releasing a new episode, but Amy and I thought it was important to release a special episode this week. Yeah, we originally planned for this episode to air a few weeks from now, but the day after we recorded it, we woke up to discover that the Supreme Court had officially overturned Roe versus Wade. It's something we all expected in recent months, or well, dreaded might be the word, but nevertheless, it really felt shocking and sickening. Um, I I don't know how else to describe it, Kim, other than, you know, I just checked my phone that morning, saw the headlines, and the pit of my stomach just kind of dropped out. It felt like our world just got dialed back a hundred years. Yeah, to be honest, I'm still completely reeling from the shock of this. Anyway, for that reason, we both agreed we wanted to release this episode as soon as possible. Over the last week, we've been hearing a lot about how crucial it is for women to share their experiences with abortion. Well, today's lost lady shared her story 64 years ago, and now that history is repeating itself. So without further ado, here's our special episode on Penelope Mortimer's Daddy's Gone a-Hunting. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Ladies of Lit, the podcast dedicated to dusting off great works of literature by forgotten women writers. I'm Amy Helms. And I'm Kim Askew. In this week's episode, we're excited to talk about a novel from 1958 that couldn't be more timely. Penelope Mortimer's Daddy has Gone a-Hunting. Recently republished by our friends at McNally Editions, this book originally shocked critics with its feminine rage. And to be honest, Kim and I didn't have this book on our schedule, but as soon as we read it, we both agreed we needed to find a spot for it as soon as possible, because not only is it unfortunately all too timely, abortion and the right to choose is key to the plot. It's also a thrillingly fantastic read. J.D. Scott wrote in the Sunday Times that Mortimer's characters, quote, seem like people who have beaten their wings against the gilded cage of the women's magazine story, having escaped into the outside world to the mountains and deserts of suffering and love. What a great quote, Amy. And yeah, that definitely fits for the protagonist in Daddy's Gone A-Hunting. There's so much to talk about here. So let's read the stacks and get started. Penelope Ruth Fletcher was born in Wales in 1918. Because of her father's work as an Anglican clergyman, she was educated all over the place, and then she attended University College of London. She left there after one year. In 1937, when she was just 19 years old, she married a journalist named Charles Dumont. They had two daughters, and she also had two daughters through extramarital relationships with two different men. One of them was a poet, Randall Swingler, who disappeared for 17 years after he found out about the pregnancy. Oh, he really wanted out of there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Johanna, her first novel, was published in 1947 under the name of Penelope DeMont. That was two years before she and DeMont divorced. She met the barrister and writer John Mortimer while pregnant with her fourth child and married him the day that her divorce from DeMont was final. The next novels to come along were A Villa in Summer in 1954 and The Bright Prison in 1956. She also co-authored a travel book with John Mortimer called With Love and Lizards. I like the title of that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Then came the book we're going to be discussing today, Daddy's Gone a-Hunting. 
Yeah, and this is a great spot to just go ahead and dive right into our discussion of the novel, because it really does weave into the biography of Mortimer herself. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But first, let's set up the plot for our listeners. Amy, it reminded me of Richard Yates' Revolutionary Road, which was actually published three years after Daddy's Gone a-Hunting. The novel's protagonist is 37-year-old Ruth Whiting. She's a 1950s suburban mom who lives in a wealthy neighborhood outside London, but she basically might as well live in a goldfish bowl. Yeah, it's a stifling, judgmental environment, to say the least. As the novel opens, it's the end of summer, and Ruth has just seen her two young boys off to their private school. Her husband, Rex, is back in London, where he stays in a flat during the week, and she feels strangely uncomfortable around the only remaining family member, her eldest, 18-year-old daughter, Angela. So we learn why there's this level of discomfort between them later, but at the start of the novel, I kept thinking about Betty Draper from Mad Men, actually, because, you know, the husband Rex is gone all week in the city, uh, so it's just her out in the burbs. I'm remembering that episode where Betty Draper goes out on the front lawn with a rifle and a cigarette in her mouth, and she just starts rage shooting birds. Do you remember that scene, Kim? Totally. It is. It's like she's just either numb or enraged, depending on the moment. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's very much like Mad Men. So, yeah, she feels trapped in what's basically an emotionally abusive relationship with an unfaithful, domineering jerk of a husband. He's cruel and taunting when he is around. And the people in their social circle seem to all kind of silently be um, propping up this whole awful system that they're all suffering under. It almost feels like Stepford, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Sophie Gilbert writes in The Atlantic that Daddy's Gone Hunting was published several years before Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. But she also says that, quote, the novel appears to anticipate what Friedan posed as the problem that has no name, the profound unhappiness of a generation of educated women trapped in the domestic sphere with no way out. And that is definitely Ruth's world. It's claustrophobic. It's oppressive. And early on in the story, it actually causes a mental breakdown for Ruth. She's terrified of losing her sense of self. And then she feels even further imprisoned because Rex, sensing that she's kind of losing it a little bit, decides to hire a nurse to keep an eye on her. She's very much like Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo Nest, I think. She's at home with Ruth, spying on her, pawing through her stuff, and she's always reporting back to Rex. We hate her, don't we? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> she's awful. <laughs> yeah, she's terrible. Oh, you can just imagine, like, if you had someone like that around, you wouldn't feel like your home was your home. Yeah. In the midst of all this, Ruth's daughter, Angela, has a confession to make. She's pregnant. So Angela's relationship with her mom is not great, but she needs help getting an abortion. Despite their friction, she knows that Ruth is her only hope. In times of trouble, you call your mom, right? So I'd love to read this section from the book where Angela actually tells her mom about her situation. She shivered, sipping her drink like medicine. Her mother was back on the sofa now, sitting bolt upright, her hands in her lap, waiting. If only she would ask. Any normal mother surely would come right out with it. Well, why have you come home? Well, really, it's a terribly corny situation, but 
digging her finger into the thick pile of the hearth rug, hiding her face with the heavy, lank hair. Angela also waited. It was a battle of silence. Did you? Her mother began at last. Angela looked up quickly, swept with relief. Her mother's face was gray, glistening, the pale mouth struggling to form words. Is anything the matter? You said, yes, I know. How did one put it? What were the right, the least melodramatic words? It wasn't easy at all. It was horrible. There was no way out. She rushed at it. I'm going to have a baby, that's all. Silence. I'm pregnant, she insisted. And then with a terrible lurch of fear, do you understand? Her mother got up and walked across the room, moving carefully around the sofa and table until she got to the distant shadowed corner. Yes, she said. She seemed to pause, considering something. Would you like another drink? No, thank you, unless you've got some tomato juice. There's some in the fridge. I can easily get it. No, really, it doesn't matter. Neither of them said anything for a full minute. Why doesn't she say something? Yell at me. Show how shocked she is. Punish me in some way. A bitter sense of injustice, worse for being unreasonable, made her want to drum her fists on the floor, howl, scream, do anything to break the silence. Are you quite sure? A friend of Tony's examined me. He's a medical student. He was quite sure. He might be wrong. He's not wrong. He's certain. How, how long did he say? Two months. I know that anyway. Why? Because it was that night we went to the fair, the day the kids went back to school. After that, I was, you know, careful. She was trying her best. As Tony kept saying, there was no point in losing your head. Tony? It was easy for him. Easy. Why were you so stupid? What? She wrenched her head up, stared incredulously across the room. Why were you such a fool? Her mother was trembling. She could see her trembling. The ineffectual, vague, silly little woman with her neat chintzed life, her safe, smug little life, her balmy games and her nerves and her idiotic laugh was angry. It was incredible. She forgot that she had wanted her to be angry. She only knew that again, again, she was being rejected, abandoned, betrayed by someone who ought to love her. There were no words for it. She knew that what she was shouting was futile that she looked ugly and clumsy and wasn't doing any good. It didn't matter. That's all you can say, isn't it? I come all this way to tell you because I think you might help, and all you can do is shout at me. You don't think about me, do you? You don't care what I'm feeling. You've never had to face anything like this in the whole of your life. It's something that doesn't happen to people like us, isn't it? What will the Tanners think, and the Johnsons, and the bloody Wilmington Smiths? Oh my God, I should have known. Stop it. They stared at each other for a moment. A coal slid down in the fire and footsteps approached along the passage. So as you can tell from that passage Amy read, Angela thinks her mother couldn't possibly understand being in such a predicament, but that's where she's wrong. Ruth understands exactly what she's feeling because she once faced the very same quandary. Yes, it turns out that Angela herself was conceived out of wedlock when Ruth was only 19. And Rex and Ruth both kind of hold their daughter at a distance on some level because they sort of blame her as, you know, the cause for this terrible marriage that they were forced into. Ruth explains to an imaginary listener, she doesn't know, of course, 
I didn't want to get married. I didn't want Angela. We had to get married. There was nothing else to do. Yeah. And it's really interesting because this plight of Angela's, her needing an abortion actually brings mother and daughter together. So on some level, they're closer than they've ever been because of the situation. Ruth goes into a sort of mom mode and tries to arrange an abortion. This is during a time when, of course, they were illegal. Watching everything they have to go through to get Angela this abortion is sobering, especially right now, um, while there are these recent threats to abortion rights happening right here in the U.S. while we're recording this episode, Amy. Yeah, totally. And I think what's really interesting is that you and I read this novel at two different times. So I read it earlier this spring before the Supreme Court document leaked. So when I was reading the novel, I was thinking, oh, thank God we've moved past this. Thank God this is not our world anymore. You, on the other hand, read it after the Supreme Court document was leaked, right? Yeah, yeah, which is horrifying. Yeah, so now suddenly you're reading the whole thing like, oh my God, this is what we're about to step back into. Yep. And anyway, I felt like this part of the novel where they're having to um, conspire to figure out how to get Angela her abortion, it reads like a thriller, right? Oh, it totally does. Because you know everything that's at stake because you're seeing Ruth's life and how trapped she is and what she doesn't want for Angela. And it's like, ah. And at the same time, she's trying to hold it together, but she's still kind of having her breakdown. She definitely wants to save Angela from her own fate, from repeating her life, basically. So this is an opportunity for Ruth to finally connect with her daughter over something. And even you almost sense a sliver of hope that she might even reconnect on some level with her husband. But at the same time, she's unraveling. So both women's futures wind up being at stake as the novel progresses. I think we should also point out that this is not a book that's like rah-rah abortion either. You know, it doesn't gloss over the difficult questions surrounding what they have to do. Ruth's determined to help her daughter because she knows exactly what she's going through. But that doesn't mean she doesn't struggle with the gravity of the decision or even have pangs of conflictedness. You know, it's much easier, I think, for Angela in the book to remain detached about her decision. But for Ruth, it's not that simple. And I like that Mortimer acknowledges that. Yeah, absolutely. It's fraught with so many things of the experience that she's going through. Um, And we won't tell you what happens next, but let's talk about how this does fit in with Mortimer's own life. It's really interesting. This is from Mortimer's 1999 obituary in The Guardian. It reads, she was fond of a quotation from Raymond Chandler. Scarcely anything in literature is worth a damn except what is written between the lines. Hmm. (laughs) Okay. And yeah, it's interesting because I didn't realize in reading this novel that it was at all based on anything in her life. So this is where the story gets pretty interesting, I think. Mortimer, who was pregnant with her first child at 19, actually did help her eldest daughter get an illegal abortion when she became pregnant while studying at a university. And thanks to a wonderful essay on Mortimer in the New York Review by Lost Ladies of Lit guest Lucy Scholes, she's also the senior editor of McNally Editions, we were able to learn a lot more about how Mortimer further mined her own life and her marriage in her writing. Her life was deemed so enviable by the press, but in reality, it was far from perfect. 
Yeah, I mean, Mortimer was known publicly as a fabulous wife and mother of six. She and her husband and family seemed glamorous and quote unquote perfect. She and John were often photographed among the London society scene. And she even wrote a column, Five Girls and a Boy for the Evening Standard. She talked about things like how to choose a school or plan a birthday party. Sounds like the original mom fluencer, right? Uh-huh, like, yeah. Everything she does is perfect. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, she had a contract with The New Yorker to write six stories a year. And these stories and her novels showed a much darker side of marriage and motherhood. She was repressing some things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so John Mortimer, like Rex in the book, was a serial cheater. She was struggling with a pill addiction. She was trying to manage this blended family. You remember, she came to the marriage with four kids of her own. Um In 1961, she was pregnant for the eighth time, and she wanted the baby, but her husband did not. And also the doctor convinced her to go ahead and terminate the pregnancy and undergo sterilization, citing health concerns for her. So she ultimately agreed to that. But while she was in the hospital recovering, she found out the terrible news that her husband was having another affair with an actress who soon became pregnant and had a son by Mortimer, the guy who didn't want her kid. It's just awful. It's heartbreaking. And so after hearing about the men in Mortimer's own life, you can kind of see how they might have inspired the male characters in Daddy's Got a Hunting, which is a chilling title, by the way. Um, We've talked about Rex, the husband, and then there's the useless and cowardly neighborhood doctor. There's also Angela's boyfriend, Tony, right? Uh, Yeah, he's no good. (laughs) (laughs) Ruth tries to talk with him about the money Angela needs to have a safe abortion, quote unquote, safe abortion. And he argues for two cheaper options, which both sound horrific. So Ruth realizes I'm not going to be able to count on this guy at all for help. This is all on me. But let's go back to what you said earlier about the title. Can we talk about the creepy music box that Ruth buys? <laughs> it plays by Baby Bunting, which is where the title comes from. Oh my God, yes. And it keeps coming up throughout the novel. And when I think about it, I can almost imagine like a Hitchcockian film version of this book with by Baby Bunting playing and the soundtrack. Oh yeah, the little tinkling. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it gets back to the whole idea that this, it really does in some ways read like a thriller. Yeah. I will never hear that lullaby again without thinking of this book, for sure. So after Mortimer's abortion, she wrote the best known of her books, The Pumpkin Eaters, which I haven't read, but it tackles some of the same issues of marriage and motherhood. And again, it's based on her own life. It was received very well, both at home and here in the U.S., and was even made into a movie starring Anne Bancroft. Yeah, I want to see that. I have not seen that. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the Mortimers finally divorced in 1971. And in 1973, she had a hysterectomy that led to a serious bout of depression. The same year, she went to Yotto, the writer's retreat, and wrote what she considered her greatest achievement, Long Distance. It's about a narrator who is hospitalized for depression. When Mortimer died of cancer in 1999 at age 81, she was still identified first and foremost as John Mortimer's ex-wife and a mother of six. Which perhaps is why most of her nine novels, a short story collection, two volumes of memoir, and a biography of the Queen Mother remain for the most part out of print. So circling back to my initial comparison with Revolutionary Road, That novel was made by Sam Mendes into an Academy Award-nominated film starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. I want to see a major director adapt this novel. 
Jane Campion, Sophia Coppola, are you out there? Are you listening? <laughs> yeah, there's no better time than now for an adaptation of this novel, for sure. It's funny, when we're reading these books by authors from bygone eras, sometimes I get the sensation that they're speaking directly to us, you know, like ghosts from the past. And I definitely felt that way reading this book, especially <laughs> knowing what's happening in our world. It's like, this is hitting too close to home. It's why we really want to encourage you to pick up a copy of the new McNally edition of this book. You will find it unnerving, I think, given recent events, but you'll also be completely engrossed. Yes. And if you were engrossed in this episode, tell us so. Let us know how you feel. You can email us or reach out to us on social media. We want to hear how you feel about this book and about this episode. That's all for today's show. See you next week for another episode. Our theme song was written and performed by Jenny Malone, and our logo was designed by Harriet Grant. Lost Ladies of Lynn is produced by Kim Askew and Amy Holmes. <laughs>